Welcome back to the Royal Studies Podcast. I'm delighted to be introducing Dr. Nicola Tallis for part two of our Young Queens feature. Now, Nicola has been on the podcast before, but we're back today to talk about a new book that she's got coming out, Young Elizabeth. So if you haven't already met Nicola or you didn't listen to the previous uh, podcast episode that she had on the Royal Studies Podcast, I'll give you a really brief introduction. Now, Nicola and I have known each other a long time. I've known her ever since her undergraduate days at Bath Spa University. Uh, she graduated there in 2011. She went on to Royal Holloway. She did the MA in public history there. And then she came to the University of Winchester and we worked together on her PhD, which is absolutely fabulous and has now been turned into a book, All the Queen's Jewels, highly recommended on the jewel collection of the Queens of England from the Wars of the Roses to the last of the Tudor consorts. So definitely keep your eyes out for that. She's been a very busy bee since she graduated. She's been involved in history and heritage. She's been involved with Alison Weir tours at Sudley Castle with historic royal palaces. She's done all sorts of fantastic uh, work in the public eye. You may have seen her on television. Um, you may have seen her again in podcasts. She's got lots of public events that she speaks at regularly. Um, but if you haven't caught, caught her in person, you can read her book. She's got a whole slew of fantastic books out. Crown of Blood about Lady Jane Grey, Uncrowned Queen about Margaret Beaufort, Elizabeth's rival about Lettuce Knollis, um, and of course, all uh, the Queen's Jewels that we just mentioned. But today, we are going to be talking about the very newest addition to her collection of publications, Young Elizabeth. So, Nicola, tell me a bit about what led you to this particular topic. I know you've worked around Elizabeth I. She's been kind of everywhere in the background here, but what led you to actually work on Young Elizabeth? Yeah, well, that's right, Ellie. As you say, I've kind of come close to Elizabeth quite a few times, but she's quite overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's it's a weird one because this book actually changed shape whilst I was writing it because originally I was due to be writing a full biography of Elizabeth, um, but I got probably about nine, ten months into it before, I don't know, I just had this light bulb moment I suppose where it didn't really feel like it was all taking shape but the parts that I felt were really strong and that were worthy of deeper exploration were her early years which really really fascinated me the fact that she wasn't born to be a queen and has this really tumultuous path to the throne that's littered with uncertainty and fear in many respects so it felt like there was a really juicy side of her story which hadn't been told for quite a long time in in depth so that was how it came into being Oh, fantastic. Well, of course, this feature has been on Young Queens. We talked to Leah Chang and she was talking about her book, Young Queens, that looks at, um, and in fact, Elizabeth was meant to be the fourth woman in that book, but ironically, uh -huh. it's not in there. So <laughs> she was looking at Catherine de' Medici and Elizabeth de Valois and also Mary Queen of Scots. And obviously Elizabeth is kind of the, the kind of the, the addition to this trio. And one of the things we were talking about is what does it what does it give us in terms of understanding a woman and understanding a, a woman's queenship by looking at these early years and the early part of their life? So how can we get to know Elizabeth better by focusing down on this particular kind of period of her childhood, her youth, etc.? I think what's really interesting, and I have to just say that I love Leah's book. I reviewed it last year and it's amazing. So yeah, definitely read that if you haven't. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of Elizabeth, what's What's really interesting is that when we take queenship out of the equation and start to look at her 
as an individual, as a human being, it gives us, I mean, in particular in her case, because there is quite a lot that we can say about her youth and her early years, but we do come to see Elizabeth the woman away from Elizabeth the queen. And I think that that is quite fascinating because they are ultimately two different people, really. When Elizabeth does become queen, she automatically assumes that persona of a queen regnant. Um, but if you look at her in her early years, none of that is present because she had, apart from the first couple of years of her life when she was her father's heir, um, the rest of her childhood was really littered with uncertainty. And the fact that, you know, she is declared illegitimate by her own father following the fall and execution of her mother, Anne Boleyn, before her third birthday. And um, so she is um, removed from the line of succession. She's declared to be a bastard. And suddenly the future as her father's heir, as a potential contender for the throne, is taken away from her. And the rest of her childhood and the rest of her youth really are spent wondering what the future may hold for her. Um, and it, what's quite interesting, I think, is that we see, particularly during the reign of her half-brother, Edward VI, she really tries to carve out this role for herself. At this time, when she doesn't know what her role is, she really tries to carve out her this role for herself as the king's sister. And I think that that's very much the way in which she sees her life going. She, um, you know, she starts to address herself as the king's, the most noble king's sister, Elizabeth. And I think that she really envisages her life as being that of a great lady. And it isn't until pretty late on, really, in Mary's reign that the possibility or what had once been a possibility of queenship then transpires into a certainty. And with that, we really see Elizabeth's confidence grow. So it's a really fascinating roller coaster ride and transition of emotions and characteristics that we see in Elizabeth during this time. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, obviously, your your book is kind of the run up to her queenship, the kind of, you know, the, would you say that there's a particular moment or a really important period in which things really change or is really vital to her preparation to becoming a queen? Is there like a crucible moment that really forms her? Yeah, definitely. I think so. And I think that this happens in Mary's reign in the 1550s, when it becomes apparent that basically, I think with the with the failure of Mary's first pregnancy in 1555, I think that that is really the pivotal moment, um, because it becomes clear, even though, of course, Mary does later experience what's possibly another phantom pregnancy. At that point, nobody really believes her to be pregnant. And I think that the um, yeah, the failure of that first pregnancy is the moment when it suddenly hits Elizabeth and she something changes and she does begin to see queenship as a real possibility. And we sort of see her go from someone who had been really fearful for her life in the aftermath of the Wyatt Rebellion against Mary in 1554 that sees Elizabeth imprisoned in the tower, um, terrified that she is going to be executed in the same manner, not only as her mother, but as her cousin, Jane Grey. Um, so we see that moment where Elizabeth's really, really fearful. She goes through a whole bout of illnesses as well, which I think are stress-related. And then... 
we see later in 1556 when um, the Dudley conspiracy against Mary it breaks out that the Elizabeth's treatment is completely different. She's not even arrested. Um, she's barely even really questioned. And I think that that's a moment where she recognizes that Mary isn't in a position to, um, to threaten her with her life anymore because there's no other heir. Elizabeth's popularity is growing. And we do really see from that time that she is kind of building up this real support network. Her confidence is growing. She's not really as worried about Mary as she once has been. So I think that, yeah, this moment comes in Mary's reign where she realizes that the queen isn't going to produce an heir. And so try as she might, Mary not going to have a lot of luck with excluding Elizabeth. And she is definitely going to become queen. Fantastic. Now, I'm so glad you mentioned illnesses, because that was something I wanted to touch on next. We talked about with Leia that, um, you know, the queens that she was looking at, there was a lot of discussion of their illnesses, their problems, worry about their illnesses, etc. And I know Elizabeth is someone who has a particularly kind of interesting kind of health history, if you like, in terms of if illnesses. So can you tell us a bit more about that? I mean, is, is we were talking about illnesses, like the greatest threat to a young queen. Do you feel like illness was a real issue for Elizabeth in her early years? Oh, absolutely. And I think that this is very much a reflection of her circumstances and um, the uncertainty of her life, really, because I think that most of the illnesses with which she is laid low are contracted as a result of stress. Um, we don't know for certain. Of course, we know it's dodgy ground sometimes trying to diagnose things at 500 years later. But I do think um, it is clear that Elizabeth does suffer from illness throughout, well, throughout her life, but particularly during her youth. And we don't always know a great deal about her symptoms. Um, we know, but we know, for example, that shortly after the death of Catherine Parr, she falls ill. I don't think that that's any coincidence. I think that that is probably something that's come about as a result of um, grief and perhaps a bit of guilt. Um, and we know equally when Elizabeth is in house imprisonment in Woodstock in 1554 and 1555, that she falls ill on a number of occasions. And, you know, she complains of, um, she seems to have suffered really badly from migraines. Um, she complains of a swelling in her body as well. It's possible that she may have suffered from inflammation of the kidneys. So I think that these are all things that are exacerbated by the circumstances in which she finds herself and the fact that she has no idea in which direction her life is going and, you know, what the future holds for her. And we can see particularly this is the case when she is at Woodstock and we've got the very, very detailed records of her, um, the man she labels as her jailer, Sir Henry Beddingfield. And, um, you know, he talks about the fact that Elizabeth is continually very grumpy with him because he won't, on occasion, he won't write to the Queen and the Council on her behalf. And this is impacting on her health. She is becoming really ill. She refuses to see any other doctors other than the royal doctors. Um, and, you know, this all has a, a huge impact on her, her mental well-being as well. So, yeah, I think without doubt, we can say... We, definitely really that the illnesses that Elizabeth experiences are a result of those very very difficult and testing times. 
Mm, definitely. I can really see your point about having like kind of stress related or anxiety related illnesses. And obviously we know that, I mean, it's a miracle that she lived as long as she did really, because yeah. she had yeah. lots of illnesses, smallpox, irregular yeah. menses, all sorts of things. So really it's amazing that she survived and it was hale and hearty as long as she was. It was a real challenge for her, it sounds like in her younger years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we do actually know from um, the only surviving set of household accounts that we have from her, which date from the early 1550s, we know that she was employing the services of a physician. So clearly, health matters were a concern to her. Yeah, definitely. And I know that those can be such rich um, accounts for unpicking medical history, payments to physicians, records of payments for medicines and things like that. I, I know with Joan of Navarre, there was definitely she had like four or five physicians on staff in between 1427 and 28 and green ginger and all sorts of things that were kind of paid for for her illnesses. So, yeah, it really gives us a different um, understanding of them as an individual as well in terms of their kind of tribulations, their suffering and their their the kind of things that that she was dealing with you know as a, as a young woman um yeah yeah no thank you for that that was really really interesting so i think thinking about elizabeth the the first i mean she's someone who continually fascinates us and so there has been so much um focus on her and obviously same with catherine de medici mary queen of scots these are women whose lives intrigue us and we want to go back to and we want to find out more about all the time so when you're working on someone like this who there's been so much fascination so much and, and obviously she was a familiar figure to you but well, I look at this period, what do you feel like? Was there some uh, new understanding or epiphany that you had about her? Or is there something that you kind of came across that you felt like, wow, this gives me a whole new kind of understanding of her? Yeah, I think, um, I think, like you said, there is so much written about Elizabeth. And when I began this project, I think that was a bit of a worry of mine because I wondered, well, how am I possibly going to be able to add anything to the abundance of fabulous scholarship that's already out there? But I do feel hopefully like I did um, because it was just fascinating actually to be able to go back and read Elizabeth's letters, um, you know, to be able to see them in the flesh. And also I think what, I found really interesting, again, was the fact that hindsight is an amazing thing. And we know now that Elizabeth was, you know, like her all over. I know that there are people on both sides of the argument, but um, she was you know, a great queen. And um, but what we when we look at her youth and her childhood, of course, what we have to bear in mind is that she never knew that that was coming. So. This, I think what really interested me was the fact that, yeah, this was a girl, um, this was the story of a girl for who queenship was by no means certain. And and I think that that was quite interesting when it came to um, looking at the decisions she made. So, you know, thinking about, for example, the um, the whole scandal that surrounds Elizabeth with Thomas Seymour and, um, you know, where he comes into her bedchamber when she's in Catherine Parr's household and so on and so forth. You know, that's quite well documented. And I quite often wonder how Elizabeth's behaviour and attitude to that would have changed had her political position been different if she was legitimate if she was a potential heir to the throne at that time 
would she have handled that whole situation differently? So I think it's quite interesting when you look at Elizabeth, not through the lens of queenship, but actually just look at her through the lens of someone who just didn't really know what was going on with her life and which direction it was going to take. Um, I think that you start to see her in a in a more human guise, I suppose. And the other thing that I found really interesting about her was, again, thinking about there's been a lot of work done on her relationships with men, um, you know, Robert Dudley, of course, and many of her potential suitors, but also thinking about the relationships she shared with the women in her life and how they came to shape her early life and the influences they had. And, you know, I'm not just thinking about Anne Boleyn and Catherine Parr, but also, you know, Kate Astley or Kat Ashley, as she's sometimes better known. I call her Kate Astley. Um, but I think that, you know, Elizabeth's lady mistress, as she was known, I think this woman had a huge impact on Elizabeth's life and was instrumental in her education, her early education. And this carried through to Elizabeth's queenship. So, I think, again, like I say, when you remove that whole mask of queenship, I think it was quite surprising to look at the twists and turns of Elizabeth's life through her eyes as someone who really didn't know what was coming next. I think you made such a good point there. We do that that does give us such a different perspective on her because you're right. There's so much foreshadowing. Like even I'm thinking about the end of the Anne of the Thousand Days movie, you know, where she's saying, you know, my my daughter will be this great queen. And and we're always thinking of her as like having that that destiny and that trajectory. But you're right. If you strip that away and you look at her as an individual, she that that wasn't the trajectory. I mean, nobody really would have expected that for her, you know, <laughs> except for maybe in those first few years when she was, you know, the, the child of Anne Boleyn when Anne was queen and yeah. then yeah other than that you're right she was just this excess awkward royal figure and no one really knew what was going to happen to her or what whether she was a bastard or not whether she was going to be married off or not what was going to happen to her and you're yeah. absolutely right you know it, it was by no means certain this kind of great destiny that she had was foreshadowed from the beginning at all so yeah I, I think that is really interesting to strip away the queenship and to see her as this difficult this young princess in a very difficult situation yeah absolutely and I think that that I think that that is part of the reason that she goes on to become such a great queen is because she has had that difficult experience and she knows how challenging life can be she's had um, plenty of experiences not all of them pleasant and uh, close strokes with death um, imprisonment and she's been involved and embroiled in plots so she knows what all of that is like before she's become queen and I think that has a huge bearing on shaping the queen that she would go on to become. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, think of so many heirs to the throne who their whole life, they know that's what's expected of them. They're being prepared for that. You know, they're being groomed for that particular role. And that sometimes is good because they're well prepared. But sometimes maybe there's a an arrogance that comes from that kind of certainty of your destiny that Elizabeth, having had to fight for everything that was hers, you know, that that does make her a better queen. I totally agree. I think that is the, the shaping of the woman that she becomes. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. brilliant. Brilliant. Well, I mean, that kind of takes me to the last thing that I wanted to talk to you about was her struggles. I mean, obviously, this is a period of struggle. This is a, a difficult period in her life, maybe the most difficult period of her life. Um, so, I mean, what do you think was her most difficult struggle? Was it, you know, with her father, with religion, with her sister and brother? I mean, what do you think was the most difficult struggle that she had to deal with? Yeah, do you know, that's a really tricky question. Um, I think... 
I feel like it's actually her relationship with Mary and um, with her half sister, because I think that that is one of the most critical relationships of Elizabeth's life. And I feel a great deal of sympathy for both Elizabeth and Mary on a personal level, because in many ways, their relationship was doomed to failure before Elizabeth was even born, purely because of the circumstances of Elizabeth's birth. And I feel like it is very much to Mary's credit that when Anne Boleyn is out of the way, she does really go out of her way to try and build this relationship with Elizabeth. And she does it very successfully. And it's very clear from Mary's accounts that she does care about Elizabeth. You know, she's buying her gifts. Um, she's buying her toys. She plays with her. She rewards Elizabeth's servants. So I think in many ways, Mary could perhaps have been seen as a kind of maternal figure to Elizabeth during her youth. And it's quite clear that the sisters are quite close as they're growing. And again, you know, this sort of distance, I suppose, starts to develop between them during the reign of Edward VI. I think partly exacerbated by their differing religious standpoints and with Elizabeth identifying herself so closely with Edward. Um, but I think even when Mary becomes queen, to begin with, she seems very happy to have Elizabeth by her side and Elizabeth's certainly very keen to be seen there. But I think actually it's after Mary's first parliament, so very shortly after Mary becomes queen, that when Mary has herself declared legitimate that I think her attitude towards Elizabeth begins to change. Um, she's, of course, got the really hostile imperial ambassadors whispering in her ear and saying that Elizabeth's plotting against her and that Elizabeth doesn't really love her. And, and I think that, unfortunately, for both Mary and Elizabeth, it doesn't take long for that poison to really get into Mary's head. And I think it's a real tragedy for both of them that that really happens. Um, because I don't know, I, I feel like they, um, they were really pitted against each other, but actually if it hadn't been for the interference of others, and again, you know, we obviously see this in the Wyatt Rebellion, who knows exactly how far Elizabeth was involved in that. I think we can certainly say she knew what was going on. Um, but, you know, we see people constantly trying to pit these sisters against each other. And it is a real tragedy because left to their own devices, who knows, perhaps they could have been close. Um, but I think, you know, ultimately as well, Mary, unfortunately, um, continues to harbour these, unsurprisingly, I have to say, but continues to harbour these very bitter feelings towards Anne Boleyn that really manifest themselves in Elizabeth's direction. And so I think that that is probably one of the hugest tragedies of Elizabeth's youth, actually. No, that is so interesting. And I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking back as well to the ways in which their relationship has been portrayed over time. And of course, you know, there's always this kind of more pro-Mary yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but you're right. I mean, it, it really kind of goes to the heart of one of the kind of key aspects of royal studies is that these royal families are families. I mean, these are brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, etc. But when you add in the politics into the mix, it changes your brothers and sisters to being, you know, rivals and threats. And, you know, it really does change the dynamic. So I think you're you're really right. You know, if if, if these two women 
could have been in a different environment. They might have had a completely different relationship, but the, mm -hmm. the stress and the dynamics of the early Tudor or the mid-Tudor court, really, and everything that's going on there and the Reformation and, and the, the backstory of what happened to their mothers and all the rest of it, it's just going to have such an impact on, on their relationship. And it, it, you're right, that's a real tragedy. It is. And I also think that it's perhaps a bit unfair to view it as um, view that situation because you're quite right people do quite often approach it with a kind of pro Mary or a pro Elizabeth attitude and I I really do think that that's quite unfair because I think that you know we have to remember that these they're human beings and they've got the same flaws and imperfections as, as all of us and I think that in some ways they were both at fault in some ways they both did good things so I think it's just all about trying to see it with a bit more balance. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'm sure you knew, your new book is going to do just that. And again, I'm really excited to see this come out because it will give us such a different view of Elizabeth. And as you said, a much better understanding of Elizabeth the woman, not just Elizabeth the queen, which is, is much needed, I think. So it's very exciting. Keep your eyes out. Anyone who's listening, you can keep your eyes out for young Elizabeth. It will be out uh, depending on when this podcast comes out very shortly afterwards. Um, and you can enjoy it and read it and add it to your collection of Nicola's fantastic books alongside books on Lady Jane Grey, Margaret Beaufort, All the Queen's Jewels and Elizabeth's cousin Lettuce Knollis as well. So lots of to enjoy there. Thank you so much Nicola for coming back on the podcast. It's been really great to kind of explore this idea of young queens and think about these 16th century royal women and, and the challenges that they faced as young women. So thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about this. Oh my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.